We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. I want to take you back to six hours one Friday. Have you ever gone somewhere, had to go somewhere you didn't want to go? Don't talk about this last week. That's too close. Uh, Have you ever had to go somewhere you didn't want to go? I have, and I probably, uh, all of us have, remembering different things in our lives. Uh, My mother in 19, uh, whatever it was, she was 46 years old, uh, so that would have been in uh, 1956. Uh, No, wait a minute, it had been 1966, excuse me. She uh, went to the doctor. She just wasn't feeling very well. And as often times we have to do that, praise God for the doctors and nurses and medicines that we have. Don't you, aren't you grateful for that? If it weren't for God's mercy and the knowledge that he's given and in uh, medical technology, how many of us would be here today? I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Uh, but in 1966, she wasn't feeling well. She was 46 years old. She went to the doctor and she came home to tell that the doctor had said she had cancer. She had cancer and they had to aggressively attack it immediately. At 40 something years old, you think you have, she'd already been through World War II. She was a staff sergeant in the army, believe it or not. When I think of staff sergeants, I think of those old tough guys, you know, that scream and holler and, and uh, mistreat you when you get off the bus. And, uh, but my mother was one of the kindest, most gentle women I've ever known or per- persons I've ever known, but one of the strongest people I've ever known also. But I'll never forget, there were five of us children, I'm the fourth of five, and she turned to us and she said, we're gonna go to church. I'd never heard of a church, didn't know what it was. And when I got there, I surely didn't know, I was six years old, I surely didn't know how to sit still. They put myself and my little brother in the nursery, I thought that was always good. My start in church was in the nursery. And uh, it wasn't as a baby, it was a six year old that just didn't know how to sit quietly. And I watched for 10 years my mother's faith grow exponentially. I watched her walk through pain and suffering, all the while working sometimes three jobs to help provide for all of our children. My dad was there, but uh, a lot of things my dad tried to do did not work out. Uh, Five children going through all kinds of struggles. I don't mind telling you if he's watching tonight or my other sister, uh, my my older two sisters and brothers, went through a lot of struggles in their early life. They, uh, they made a lot of wrong choices. And I'll never, never be as grateful as I am for the day that my older brother invited me to dinner. And that, during that dinner, he said, I'm not sure I know Jesus. And before that dinner was over, he and his wife came to know Jesus. And they've been living for him ever since. I have a sweet older sister that is one of the most hardworking ladies that I've ever known. She's not been treated well by life. I'm not sure whether she's saved or not. If she's listening here tonight, Sandy, I love you, and I pray for your salvation as I ask you to pray for me. And we've talked about that many times. And my older sister, Debbie, that was nine years older than I am, has already passed away. But I'll remember my mother coming home and saying, we're going to go to church. And she told us we have can- she had cancer. Well, I got to hear as a little boy words like cobalt. You don't hear that too, many, too much anymore. That was an aggressive type of medicine that was given. Radiation, chemotherapy. Many of you probably here in this room have either been a part of that or you have known uh, your family members that have struggled through those kind of things. 
thankful for the technology and how it's grown in the last 50, 60 years. But this was 1966, and all I knew that the person that I looked up to and respected the most was asked to go through something that was very difficult. I didn't want her to go through it. At that time, I remember wondering, is there anything I could do? I was six years old, but is there anything I could do so that she wouldn't have to go through that pain and suffering? By going to church, I heard about a man named Jesus. My mother was growing in Christ, studying her Bible and reading her Bible, and she was pouring that in to us as children. When my mother talked to me about Jesus, I couldn't ever ask a question. I'm not one of those children. I'm one of those that sit silently. I couldn't ask a question or even answer, but I got a lump in my throat about the size of my grown fist right now every time she mentioned the name of Jesus. Sitting in the pew on the right side, the back pew of that little church in a little small town, I heard about this man who could do something for my mom and who could do, do something for me. And his name was Jesus. When I was eight years old, I came, became a Christian and I felt the, the presence of the, the Lord's spirit inside of my heart. I was forgiven of my sins. You may say, how much sin could an eight-year-old amass in that time? It's not the amount. It's one sin separates us from the holy God. And that God loved me and he loved my mom so much that he died on the cross of Calvary so that there could be a relationship I could have without that guilt and without that separation. And that's what I was learning and had come to know. But I watched my mom for 10 years grow spiritually and die physically. She had to go somewhere she didn't want to go. She had to go somewhere I didn't want her to go, and I would have done anything I could to keep her from having to go there. We're going to look at six hours one Friday. I've asked many of you as I walked in this evening, how was your Thanksgiving? I hope it was great. I ask all the time, how was your week? I wonder if we could ask Jesus, how was that Friday for you? Let's look at these verses that were read to us. Thank you, Joel, for reading. In Mark chapter 15, some of you say, we're almost through with Mark. I heard that hallelujah underneath your breath. It's been a while. It takes a while to get through a book of the Bible, even one this short, because there's so much in there. But we'll look for other great things ahead. Mark read to us in verse 1, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately. If you were counting, I told you at the beginning of this study of Mark, you would find the word immediately 42 times in the book of Mark. This is number 42. And I believe that that's a sign, a symbol of Mark being so eager. He's like a child and immediately and then and then. I love to hear the enthusiasm of a child when they tell you about what they've done or where they've been. They come home from a field trip at school and they tell you, and we saw this and we saw this and that's Mark. Mark is repeating much of what Peter had poured into him as a disciple of Peter. And he says, immediately they held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so Pilate was amazed. 
You're going to see in this passage and in other passages, the other gospels, during this time, Jesus would answer certain things and he would not answer other things. The Bible has to be fulfilled. And the scripture says that when Jesus was delivered up to be crucified, he was like a lamb before its shearers. He was dumb and not, uh, not able to speak. It wasn't that Christ couldn't speak, but he didn't have to defend who he was and what he was. He would answer them at times when it was God's will to fulfill that it, his hour had come. But oftentimes as he stood before Pilate, who was Pilate? Pontius Pilate was a Roman procurator. He was one in charge of making sure these Jews stayed in line. He Just picture him as a governing official for Rome in a province, in a place where he didn't want the word to get back. Those Jews are being unruly and Pilate hasn't taken care of it. If you're a teacher and somebody leaves you in charge of a classroom, you don't want the word to get back that you couldn't handle that classroom, do you? You want the word to get back. Everything was under control and he or she had it taken care of. Pilate was uh, a married man. We see in the scripture that his wife's going to give him some counsel he should have listened to, but he didn't listen to. He was a man that would try to appease the Jews as far as he could to get along with them, but he was a Roman. He was sold out to Rome, and Jesus would stand before him. I told you last week, Jesus would face six different trials. The first three were by Jewish leaders in which he was falsely accused of blasphemy, and the, the next three are what we're reading about here tonight. Pilate, Herod, King Herod, and back to Pilate. They held a consultation. They got together and they decided, here's what we need to do. We need to capture Jesus, bind him, and we need to have him crucified. And we need to do it quickly. They were afraid that the mobs that had cried out after Jesus, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They were afraid they were going to show up and they didn't want them to show up because they would be chanting for Jesus, set him free. He's done nothing wrong. So they said, we need to do something quickly. Roman, uh, Roman trials were held early in the morning. That's why the Jews operated at night. It was actually illegal to have a Jewish trial at night, but they broke the rules so that they could present Jesus before Pilate early in the morning. Why? Because only the Romans could crucify Jesus. They could stone him as a Jew. They could stone him if he was guilty of the Jewish law. But they wanted Jesus crucified. It had been prophesied that this one, this Messiah, would be hang on, uh, hanged on a tree. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And do you realize that Jesus had to become a curse for us? We'll see that as we go a little further. I want you to notice what they did to, to him. They consulted against him. They bound him. They tied him up. They led him away. They delivered him. And they're going to question and accuse him. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, it's as you say. He didn't make any further answer. And Pilate was just amazed that he didn't plead his case any further. Verse 6 says, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner whom they requested. It's not happenstance that this Friday is the Friday during the Passover week. It could have been another time of the year. It could have been during the, the Jewish summer. It could have been during the, uh, another season. But it is prophesied that the Messiah would be killed during the time of the Passover. 
And that's the very days. When we think about and we read Jewish uh, uh, history throughout the Old Testament, things happened to the very day. Israel, you're going to be in bondage for 400 years. And the Bible says, when that day was up, they were 30 years in prosperity with Joseph when he was there. And in 400 years of being slaves, it says the very day is when the death angel came and killed all those uh, firstborn of, Israel, of, of Egypt and he led his people uh, free. God keeps his word and the Messiah had to go through these things during the Passover. At the feast of the Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner whom they requested. This was a token thing to appease the Jews. The Romans would just take somebody out of prison. We're going to set him free just to make a, a, a show of faith toward the Jews and to make them happy. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. So Barabbas, we don't know very much about him. You might have seen the movie a long time ago. I hope what happened in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. Or I read the book as a freshman in high school. But did any of you as a freshman in high school, if you had a book that big, you read about that much of it? I, I was known to do that. I remember one a book called A Portrait in Courage when I was a junior in high school. And I was supposed to give a report over that. And I read about that much of a book that was that, long, that big. And I gave the best report you've ever heard over John F. Kennedy because that was the first few chapters of that book. And I got the worst grade I ever got in my life in English because I didn't know it was talking about seven different people in that book. I got through the first one and that's all it was. My teacher was not impressed. Barabbas, we don't know much about him, but we know he was a murderer he tried to overthrow the government. He's a bad guy. He would be on the offender lists in our neighborhood. We would not want our children near him. We would not, to be, would not want to have anything to do with him. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate, this is the time you usually let somebody loose for us. In Pilate's mind, I believe all, with all my heart, he thought they're going to ask for Jesus. I'm going to get out of this. I don't think there's anything wrong with this man. It's just Jewish argument. I'm going to get out of this. They're going to pick Jesus. And it says, Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate wasn't in on that at the beginning. He knew that they, they were just jealous of this man because they were claiming to be the people of God, the Jewish leaders, but they couldn't heal a blind man. They couldn't raise Lazarus from the dead. They couldn't heal that lame man and that, that, that man that was deaf. But Jesus did. And he said, they're just jealous of this one. I know that's why they've turned him over. And he said, wouldn't you like for me to release to you the king of the Jews? But the chief priest, verse 11, stirred up the crowd. Does that ever happen? Is there a crowd ever get stirred up anywhere? Oh my goodness, when we turn on our television sets, we can see all kinds of mayhem and anarchy because somebody lit a fire. Somebody started the, the rebellion. Somebody coached them, paid them. Don't be, don't be swayed, and I know you're not. Don't be swayed by what you see. Things are all, not always the way that they seem. 
They, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call, <coughs> excuse me, the king of the Jews? And they shouted back. And guys, listen about this. This is an amazing thing that these people who had watched Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead and the blind and the lame, and he had taught this doctrine of love and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness. He had held those babies in his arms and said, you got to become like a little child to enter into the kingdom of God. For them to be able to cry out, crucify him. Oh, something sinister, something evil is taking place. I told you the title of this is Six Hours, One Friday. The Jewish day began at six o'clock in the morning, so that when we hear about the third hour, that is nine o'clock in the morning. When we hear about the sixth hour, that is noon. And when we hear about the third hour, that is three o'clock, uh, the uh, ninth hour, that is three o'clock in the afternoon. There's going to be a time that we're going to see there is silence. There is darkness from noon until three o'clock. Now, that's normally when the sun is the highest and the sun is the hottest. And those people that are over in Israel right now from our church, some of you have gotten pictures back. Aren't those cool pictures? If you can't ever go to Israel, it's a trip that will change your life. Uh, I got to go in September of 2011, and I was escaping the heat here in Texas. I thought it was just as hot in Israel as it was in Texas. We just about burned up. But there's going to be a season here where something else is going on. I'm going to tell you what I believe was happening in just a moment. He said, I know that they've just delivered him up for envy, but why don't you let me give you Jesus, the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? And notice, <clears throat> they cannot give anything that proves Jesus has done wrong. If you had siblings in your house, and something happened, something got broken, and your parents came home and they said, who did it? Uh, I don't know what happened in your household when there's five siblings, but uh, I'm one of them, you know, I'm not gonna lie and say I didn't do it, but it was probably written all over my face. I am the one, I am guilty, because I can't hide anything. They didn't even have any excuse to try to kill Jesus because he didn't do anything wrong. What evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, crucify him, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Young people, you're gonna be tested many, many times in your life just to see if you'll go along with the crowd. Those of us who are a little bit older, we have been tested, haven't we? I know we used to hear, if everyone jumps in the lake, are you gonna jump in the lake? You know, I used to hear that and I'd think, oh, why would my parents say that? Until the first time I was tempted and tested, if everybody's going to do something, are you going to do it too? Beware. The crowd can be going the right place. It's a good place to be in that crowd. The crowd can be trying to get you to do something that's not good at all. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them and having scourged Jesus... Having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Who was Barabbas? I told you last week, I think we're Barabbas. 
I truly do. I think we were in prison, not only in prison, we were already sentenced to die and we were already dead in our sins. But picture yourself in a jail cell. You know you've committed murder. You know you've been uh, against the government. You are in trouble. You have been caught. And everything in your mind is telling you it's, no, it's not very long until I'll be killed. I will be put on a Roman crucifix and uh, suffer Roman capital punishment. Just waiting for the knock at the door. And there was a knock at the door or the chains coming in, opening those, those jail cells, however they had him bound. And they called his name most likely, Barabbas, come here. Now he probably put up a fight. He probably would have fought to the last uh, instant. He was, he was a, a, a rough, rough man. But picture that moment when they turned to Barabbas and said, Barabbas, you're free to go. I would have thought, yeah, you're going to just let me get outside the door and you've got soldiers waiting and you're going to kill me. And Now they said, Barabbas, you're free to go. How in the world could that take place? And can you imagine the person that explained that to him? Barabbas, there's a time that Jewish uh, people can request Pilate to release somebody from jail. You're one of them. They have cried out for you to be released. One of the biggest shocks that a human can have. Nobody would cry for Barabbas to be released. And then he said, and someone else was chosen instead of you. I don't know what it looked like or what it seemed like to Barabbas the first moment when he said, who was that? And they said the name Jesus. But did you know something? That at the name of Jesus, somebody can be saved? You mean I don't have to go to Sunday school and I don't have to go to seminary and I don't have to hear uh, Billy Graham preach a sermon or Tommy Nelson or I don't have to hear these great evangelists preach to me and, and then because of their great preaching I get saved? I tell you what, the littlest child in the worst household here tonight or in no household that is homeless under a bridge somewhere that has no one to care for them or love them, maybe in a hospital room somewhere with no family, that at the name of Jesus, they hear that name. There's power in the name of Jesus and they can be saved. I heard a story, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I heard a story of a little girl who'd been through a rough, rough time in her life, terrible uh, life, uh, home life, and she'd watched her mom and dad and he was, his dad was, was abusing her mom and hurting her. It was terrible and she hid behind the, uh, the couch. And all of a sudden her dad stopped and something stopped him from doing that and he left and, and the little girl looked up and, and she tried to describe what happened. Uh, somebody came to help her mom and, and, and well, who was it? I, I don't know who it was. And later on, someone showed a picture of what we think Jesus might have looked like. And she said, who is that man? And they said, well, that's a picture of Jesus. And she said, he's the one. He's the one that was there that day that helped my mama. I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to hear millions of stories like that, that Jesus was there. He was in that hospital room. He was there behind the couch with that little girl. He was in the closet of that little one hiding or that single mom taking care of her children and she's sick and he was there. He was there when that doctor's diagnosis came. He was there. I went through BTCP with a man named 
Dean, his last name was Dean, Ed Dean. I always liked sitting in front of Ed because Ed had a great big baritone voice. The only time I can do that, I've been sick with a cold and I can do it today. But he did it normally. He sang with the Dallas Philharmonic, had a great voice. He would read out of the King James Version and when Chris Cobble asked him to read the scripture, I mean, it's like Moses standing behind me. I went up on the mountain, you know. It's like God talking to you. I love to hear Ed Dean. Almost through, all the way through, uh, through BTCP, I believe it was before it was over. Ed had some pain in his back and he went to the hospital and they ran some tests. He thought he had some arthritis. And the doctor came into Ed's room and he said these words, you better get a six pack and a fishing pole because it's terminal. How would you like to hear those words? Well, the very first thing, what would you say? I would have been shocked. I would have not known what to say most likely. But the very first thing that came out of Ed Dean's mouth was when the doctor said, you're terminal, he said, you are too. Isn't that cool? Isn't that one of those times you, you, you think about later? I wish I would have said that, but I just couldn't think of it at the time. Well, God gave that to Ed at the time. He said, you are too. What do you mean? Where are you going to go, doctor, when you die? He said, I suppose I'll go back where I came from. Do you know where you're going? He said, yes, I know where I'm going. Jesus has paid the price for me and I, I believe in him and I trust him. And Ed Dean sought to lead his doctor to Christ that had just given him his death sentence. Later on, Ed didn't li uh, live very much longer. He had a huge tumor on his spine that was cancer. His wife was there and some of us would go in from time to time. Uh, Ed loved to sing and some of us would sing hymns with him and many of the BTC brothers would go in there and his wife said, I've got to tell you something, Mike. I've got to tell you. And she said, just a few days before he died, Ed and I were in the room by ourselves. And a lot of people had come, but nobody had come that day. And Ed said to his wife, uh, where are those men? Pointing toward the door. And she said, I don't, know, I don't know what men you're talking about. We had a lot of men yesterday. And he said, no, today. Where are those men that were at the door? And she said, honey, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about because... Uh, there hasn't been anyone there at the door today. And he said, oh, yes, there has been. They've been here for quite a while today. But they're gone now. But he's been here the whole time. He pointed to the left of his bedside where no one was standing. But he said, he's been here the whole time. Our, thing, our Jesus, our Lord and Savior said, I'll never leave you, forsake you. Did he say, but a hospital room? But after you get the diagnosis, I'll never leave you except when you're in pain, you're sick, you're afraid or sorrow and suffering. No. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to hear millions, probably after about a million years of worshiping Jesus, we'll get to look around some and, and have another million years to do some other great things. But I believe we're going to hear the stories. Let me show you where an angel was in your life and spared you on 380 from having that wreck. 380 is going to come up in heaven, I promise you, the way they drive out there. How many times are we going to hear the Lord say, let me show you what I did for you. I was right there with you. You didn't see me, but I was right there with you. Barabbas. I pray Barabbas is in heaven. Because not only did he get set free that day, I pray he came to know Jesus, the one that set him free, and that he got set free spiritually and forgiven. Wouldn't that be cool? But I had to realize 
I'm Barabbas. That cross should have been mine. How about you? He took my place. I deserved it. He didn't. Notice what they've done. They've consulted against him. They bound him. They led him. They delivered him. They questioned him. They accused him. And it says, having Jesus scourged, handed him over to be crucified. We don't know whether Jesus went through a Roman scourging or not. We don't know. Uh, there were oftentimes that someone could only be beaten on the back 49 stripes because they would die. There wouldn't, uh, 40, 40 stripes uh, possibly. What is it that in, in the book of Acts? A Roman um, soldier was trained to take a Roman scourge that had different tails on it. They could, they could tie barbs of some kind. They could tie sharp rocks, things that bones that would literally, once they cut into the flesh would tear flesh from off of the, that back. You may say, Mike, don't get too graphic. You know, when I was, my children were little, someone said to me, why do you want to describe the, the cross as in detail as, as you do? Well, I want to tell you something. I want my children to know what our Lord went through. I want my children to know at the appropriate time, at the appropriate age, I want my children to know the pain and suffering that our Lord went through. To scourge someone is to literally whip them and to pull the flesh off of their back. Did you know Jesus went through that? He had to go a place he didn't want to go. And you and I wouldn't want to go, go there either. In verse 16, the soldiers took him away into the palace. And that's the praetorium. The praetorium is a, a palace where Pilate would stay. Sometimes it refers to the tent that is around it. But oftentimes it's the palace itself. Jesus was taken there. They called together the Roman cohort and they dressed him up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. Not only is the creator of the universe, this one that taught about love, to turn the other cheek, to, uh, to give your face to the smiters, it says in Isaiah, his back to those that would beat him. This one that preached repentance and forgiveness and love and mercy and grace is now being mocked. They, put a, they took clothes off of Jesus. That, that embarrassing, is embarrassing enough. They mocked him. They, they are belittling him. He is the king of the universe, and yet he has lowered the shield. How many things had happened to Jesus in the last thousand days? None. Because he said, it's not my time. But at the right time, Jesus lowered that force shield and he allowed those things to take place. They put a purple robe on him. Purple was a symbol of royalty. Uh, if you had purple garments, uh, to this day, if you go over to Israel, there's a lot of grays, there's a lot of whites and blacks, but there's not a lot of purple. Purple was, uh, was expensive. And it was, a, it was a symbol of royalty. You had to be a king, someone who had means and resources and someone had a purple robe and they put it on Jesus and they started making fun of him and they made a crown out of thorns. I don't know about you. These most commentators think they were two or three inches long. I've been around mesquite thorns all my life and guys, they hurt. Uh, when you step on them, when they get in your knees, they hurt, they swell, they cause inflammation. They have a little bit of poison on the end of them. Uh, when you jump off the shed that you're building in your back uh, yard a few years ago and there's still a nail sticking up in the board that you dropped and you jump on that and it goes through your boot and into your foot it hurts I want to tell you whoever did that told me that it hurt 
<clears throat> I have a lot of scars. <laughs> I have a lot of scars. But they put a crown, making fun of him, not just the physical pain, but the mockery of that crown forced down on his head. Can you see it? Can you feel the cut and the bleeding that would come down on his head? And they mocked him and made fun of him. Handed him over to be crucified. They began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed. Every time that they would take one of those reeds and hit Jesus over the head, you can see how it would force those thorns deeper into his skull and cut the flesh. And spitting on him. I don't know if there's hardly anything you could do to a man that I know uh, to make him any madder than, than to spit in his face. Can you think of much harm his wife or his children? But spit in a man's face and, and the fight's on. Now this is Jesus could have instantly thought and taken their breath away. He could have had them executed right in front of him. He could have killed them all. He could have destroyed them with just the thought of his brain. And yet he let them spit in his face. And kneeling down before him, they made fun of him. They mocked him, took the purple robe off him, put his own garments on him, and led him out to, be, to crucify him. He has been consulted against, bound, led, delivered, questioned, accused, scourged, handed over, dressed him up to make fun of him, a crown of thorns, made fun of, beaten, spit upon, mocked, led him to Calvary. And now they're going to force him to carry his own cross. Can you imagine what it felt like when they would take that cross beam that a Romans uh, would crucify and probably at these moments tie it to his, his wrist so he couldn't drop it and make him carry it on his back that is bloody and beaten and the flesh is exposed. I want to walk you through something real quick of six different types of wounds Jesus had. You may say, I didn't know I was going to get this by coming to church tonight. Guys, before we can have Christmas and before we can worship the baby Jesus, we've got to realize that that baby Jesus came to do this and he did it because he loves you. Number one, Jesus had contusions. Some of you medical people correct me if I'm wrong on these things, but that's a wound that's produced by a blunt object. A contusion is, is something blunt hitting you. It's causing a deep bruise and a wound. That was foretold in Micah 5.1 that the Messiah was going to be beaten that way. And in Matthew 27, it talks about that type of injury and also the type of contusion that would come when the Roman soldiers hit Jesus with their fists in his face. Isaiah tells us that Jesus' face was marred, beaten more than any other man. He gave his beard to those that would pluck it. Contusions. Jesus had lacerations. That's produced by a tearing instrument. That's the scourge, the whip that would tear the flesh. Lacerations. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, and in Matthew 27, John 19, it describes that Jesus, before the crucifixion, do you realize that a lot of people did not even get to the crucifixion? Once the Romans had scourged them and beat them, many of them died before they even got hung on a cross. Jesus went through more than all of them and God let him 
live through that to face the cross. A laceration is a tearing instrument. Those that Roman scourge, many of them would bleed to death. They'd have their their uh, their eyes sometimes taken out. I won't go any further, but it was very very sick. Sometimes tearing flesh so you could see the muscles and the sinews. They were exposed. Number three, Jesus had abrasions. They're caused by some object rubbing or scraping against the skin. He would have had that type of wound when he was forced to carry that wooden cross. As he took a step, it would press down and it would scrape on his already beaten back. He was, had abrasions all over him. His physical condition was so poor that Jesus fell down in that place. Those that have just gone to Israel have walked down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And there's uh, several stations of the cross. And one of those stations is where they believe that Jesus fell under the weight of his cross. And the women were weeping for him. Jesus had abrasions that would literally scrape the skin and, and hurt him that way. Jesus had penetrations. That's a deep wound caused by a sharp pointed instrument. It would be like a knife, a dagger with a sharp point that would be thrust into someone's skin. Jesus had that, and it also, he also had it on his brow when those thorns would be pressed into his skin. Jesus had a perforation. That's one that pierces through the body at some point, goes all the way through. When they took those, those spikes to nail Jesus through his hands, and whether it was here or there, it doesn't matter, uh, whether it was and through his feet, that is the perforations that those huge sharp spikes went all the way through the body and nailed to that wooden cross. And finally, Jesus had incisions. And that's a cut produced like a knife, the edge of a knife, a sharp knife. When that soldier pushed that, that sword in Jesus' side and water and blood came out of his side, that was an incision. Around our heart, we have what's called a pericardium. And that is a sack of fluid. And usually it's not that much fluid. It's very important that you have it though because that's what helps protect the heart. When Jesus was in agony and dying, you remember it said he sweated like drops of great uh, blood. His sweat was so profuse and so big and so strong. Uh, many believe that during the agony of death that that pericardium grows and more fluid gets in there and puts pressure on the heart. You've heard of the fluid around the heart and how dangerous that is. That's why many of them don't live to be crucified. Jesus went through all of that. In verse 21, they pressed him into service. A passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You want a good study? Read about them in, in Romans. Uh, this guy's special because some of his children do some good things. They follow Jesus later in their life. And they found him. This man from the country had come to Jerusalem and they said, you, how would you like that to be chosen out of a crowd? You come and carry his cross. I was asked one time, if you could do anything for Jesus in the final days of his life, what would you do? Who would you want to be? And I said, I want to be Simon of Cyrene. I'd love to carry that cross for him. Knowing that he had to go to the cross, there's nothing I could do. I'd rather him not go to the cross as a human, but knowing that he did, I would rather be this man to carry that cross so Jesus wouldn't have to. Verse 22, then they brought him to the place called Golgotha, 
which is translated place of a school, Golgotha. That even sounds bad, doesn't it? When I was in Israel, they said, we're going to go see Golgotha. I didn't know what to expect. I'd heard about it before, but we're walking on, you know, a street going into a gated place. It's actually controlled the area where you can see that by the British government. The British government turning uh, Israel back over in 1948 to Israel kept that portion of land where a garden and the tomb is at. And I thought, well, what's it going to be like, you know? The place of a skull. And I began walking the steps, and they had a fence that you could walk up to, and they said, walk up to the fence. And I'm walking there, and I think, well, I don't see anything. And I get to that fence, and I saw this. And when you walk there and you see that for the very first time, it grabs a hold of your heart. Now, they park buses at the bottom. They built things on the top of that hill. But that's Golgotha. Even through the erosion of 2,000 years, we can still see the outline that the writer of this scripture could see, the place of the skull. And that's the place that the Romans would execute people on top of that hill. Just to the left of that is a garden. I had the privilege of serving communion in that garden. And then we walked into a tomb that they didn't find until several years ago. It had been all covered up by dust and mud and dirt. And they excavated and found a tomb that was dug out into the rock, just like the scripture says, not far from a hill called Calvary. Verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. You know why? He he was not going to take a painkiller. I've been ill this week. My wife has been ill. We're doing better. Ask for your prayers. But um, I didn't mind taking some medicine to try to help. Jesus was going to suffer Calvary without any type of aid. We get the word excruciating in the English language. You know where that comes from? Ex means out of. Excrucia means cross. Out of the cross. Excruciating pain is pain like crucifixion. Next time you hear that word. Well, I hurt my finger and it's excruciating. I'm not too sure that's excruciating. <laughs> may have to get a little more severe to be excruciating. Out of the cross. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Sometimes the bodies would stay alive for a few days. The only way uh, that a person on a cross could live and breathe would be to push up with his legs to be able to inhale and exhale. And with the pain of being spiked to the cross, that person could not do that for very long. To pass the time, soldiers are used to doing this. They're used to killing people and punishing people and hurting people. To pass the time, they just started gambling. It said that Jesus had a seamless robe that didn't have a seam and it was valuable, so they cast lots for it. Uh, I'm not a gambler. People, I, I, now I take that back. Holly and I always in our life we always bet, and it's it's a red lobster. It is. If I win, then you have to buy a red lobster for me, and if you win, you, then I have to buy a red lobster for you. We've been married thirty three years, 
I have won so many red lobsters because I don't bet unless I know it's I know the answer. But something always turns out differently because when we get to pay, guess who gets to pay? I've paid for all of those that I won. I don't know how that works. It's not, I'm not a very good gambler. But someone asked me one time, being serious, do you gamble? And I'm not being critical. Some of you may do whatever. I'm not being critical at all. I'm sorry for people that are caught with that addiction and it harms their family. But they said, do you gamble? And I said, no, sir, I don't want to gamble because I don't want to be doing when Jesus comes back, what those soldiers were doing into the foot of his cross. They gambled for his clothes. It was the third hour when they crucified him. He's been on the cross now, suffering in pain. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Remember, Pilate wanted to have that changed. Say that it says he's the king of the Jews, and God wouldn't let that change. He is the king. And God made sure that that sign stayed the same. Verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said he was numbered with transgressors. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant was going to be numbered, counted with transgressors, sinners that had done wrong. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him. Another place it said they were cursing him, mocking at him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who crucified, were crucified with him were also insulting him. Jesus was being mocked, laughed at, cursed, belittled. This one who had taught about love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, and peace. I want to tell you what, it's a wonderful thing when you go visit someone in the prison and a big, strong man says, I can't be forgiven. And you tell them about Jesus and you tell them 1 John 1, 9 and you tell them what the scripture says and he says, but you don't know what I've done. You know, one of the pleasures that I have in my life is to say, I don't know what you've done, but it doesn't matter because Jesus said you can be forgiven. Alistair Begg has been preaching a message lately. He said, the one on the middle cross said I could be here. When you get to heaven, they say, uh, how'd you get here? The one on the middle cross said I could come. That's a pretty good way to put it, isn't it? These two men dying with Jesus began cursing him. Something happens, though, as you know what later happens. One of them turns and stops cursing Jesus and said, Lord, calls him Lord and said, would you remember me when you come in your kingdom? And Jesus, in the midst of his own pain and suffering, turns to the one and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is still evangelistic. He's still the preacher. He's still the savior, even while he can't even breathe. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. We've gone through three hours of that Friday. We're almost through looking at it. But now there's three hours of darkness it should be the brightest time of the day from noon until three o'clock. It should be as bright as it could be, but it's dark. And it says there's silence. 
I don't know what happened. But I wouldn't be surprised when we get to heaven, we find out that there was the largest spiritual battle that had ever taken place. All the demons of hell and Satan himself rejoicing in the killing of the Son of God. Remember, Satan doesn't know what's ahead. He doesn't know the resurrection's coming. He doesn't know salvation's coming. All he knows is, I want to harm the Son of God. And in those three hours of darkness and silence, we'll find out when we get to heaven what took place. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, David said those words a long time before that. And this is a prophecy resulting in the Savior that says, God, why have you forsaken me? And some may argue, well, God didn't forsake his son. Isaiah tells us, yes, he did. For a moment. For a moment. The sins of all mankind were placed on Jesus. Isaiah tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin of every man, woman, and child. Those that were alive before Jesus. Those who were alive at that time. You and me and those that will live in the future. Was poured upon Jesus. He experienced the wrath of almighty God. And for a moment, the father had to look away. I've told you before, I picture that as the father holding Jesus. He didn't forsake his son, just looking away for a moment because holy God can't look on sinful man. You may say, Jesus didn't deserve that. He sure didn't. I did. I did. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Another version, another uh, gospel writer says, There was a great earthquake, and the rocks were split at that time. Rocks were split. You'll never find a rock completely without a crack in it. And notice what it says, the veil in the temple. That was the temple veil where you couldn't get into the holiest of holies. It was split from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top like man could do that, but it was split from the top to the bottom. God saying, I'm the one that did this. And he cut that curtain saying, there's a new way now. Hebrews later tells us, by a new and living way, by the blood of Christ, we can enter into the holiest of holies. I don't know about you, but are you praying for someone? Are you praying for something in your life? Do you want God to do a work in your family? By the blood of Jesus that he shed, this day we're reading about, he's made a way for you to enter in behind the curtain. You can go into the holiest of holies. I remember sitting as a college student in a church service just like this and I'd, I'd hear the preaching and I'd think, what, what are they talking about? I'd already known Jesus, but I had a whole lot of growing to do. I've still got a whole lot. How about you? But you and I can get there now because of what Jesus did on that Friday. 
He cried with a loud voice and he gave his spirit back unto God. And the last part of this, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Do you know that's what millions throughout the years have said since then? When Christ does a work in their life, they said the same thing. Truly, Jesus is the son of God. When you go back to your friends after you get saved and they say, what happened to you? Your message is truly, hey, this Jesus, he's real. He is the son of God. There's somebody that needs to hear that message from you. Maybe this week. We're about to enter the Christmas season. We ought to let this be the greatest Christmas there ever has in this country. We ought to put Christ first. We ought to love unconditionally. Love that unbeliever. Don't don't condemn them for what they're doing. God will take care of that. You love them. Because we need to share the message. Truly, this man was the son of God. I close with this. They consulted against him. They bound him. They led him. They delivered him. They questioned him. They accused him. They scourged him. They handed him over. They dressed him up with a crown of thorns. They made fun of him. They beat him. They spit upon him. They mocked him. They led him to Calvary, forced him to carry his own cross. They gambled for his clothes. They crucified him, associated with common criminals, hurling abuse, cursing, wagging their heads, ridiculed him, insulted him, left him to die without them knowing. They unleashed the greatest power Ever. Paul writes to the Corinthians, the preaching of the cross, the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Talking about what we've read here tonight, it's foolishness to the world. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the salvation, the preaching of of six hours, one Friday. I pray this Christmas season you would celebrate with all your heart, but there can't be Christmas fulfilled until we have Calvary. You know him, don't you? I was taking someone to the emergency room at one time. They were very sick, and I watched this girl, several years younger than I am growing up, but I didn't know her personally uh, very much. But I watched the way she cared for that patient with love and kindness and with excellence. She knew what to do, but I saw something. I saw something about her. And uh, I prayed for that patient and she was right there. And when I got through and the patient was taken somewhere else, I turned to her and I said, you know him, don't you? I was talking about Jesus. She knew who I was talking about. She said, yes, I do. You know what I was saying? You know what she was saying? Same thing that guard said. Truly, he is the son of God. Next time you gotta go somewhere you don't wanna go, remember, Jesus went to Calvary so you can go where he wants you to go to. Six hours, one Friday. And now the greatest message that the world could ever hear is available to to tell. Somebody needs to hear it and you're probably the one they need to hear it from. Let's pray. As Joel and his crew come forward to lead us in our closing hymn, we're all sitting here. Some of you may be visitors. We're so glad you're here. If somebody brought you that comes here, I want to tell you they're good people. 
They're good people if they brought you here. You may have some little ones in Awana. You may be a student. You may be a faithful family that served here as a volunteer 20 years in this service. You may be listening online here tonight. Well, one thing's for sure, that what happened on those six hours of that Friday that Jesus went through was for you and me. What will you do with him? Will you be one of those that wails on him and laughs at him and mocks him and makes fun and one day you'll get that diagnosis from the doctor? You need to get a fishing pole because it's terminal. What will you do then? Or will you be ready on that day and you get that message and you can say, by God's grace and by his mercy, I'm ready to go home because truly this man was the son of God. In Jesus' name. Amen.